welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast. Happy New Year, Patrick. Uh, happy New Year to you, Jeff. It's With me, of course, as always, is Jeff Allworth, author of the Beer Bible from Workman Publishing, uh, out now. Cider Made Simple from Chronicle Books, also out now. Uh, Beer Tasting Cool Kit. And, uh, of course, blogger at uh, the Beer Vana blog and at All About Beer. Yeah, that's correct. All that seems to check out. And you are uh, Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at Oregon State University. Hey, you got it right this time. I got it right this time. And uh, a research fellow at the Center for Applied Microeconomic Research at Sao Paulo uh, School of Economics, C-Micro, and at Bonn, Germany, in some other long, convoluted name. Yeah, I don't even know what the German... But it's IZA is the acronym in, in okay. German. Well, you're Institut des Reichsstiftung, something about study for labor. Anyway. You are uh, an esteemed research fellow, uh, international research fellow, and we are happy to have you here. Uh, on I'm the, certainly a research the fellow. The other part. Well, I, I won't attest to. I esteem you. Uh, so yeah, happy New Year, Jeff. Uh, I was disappointed. Um, speaking of your books, I was in Powell's right before the. Right before the Christmas, doing some last-minute holiday shopping, looking for the beer Bible. Sold, sold out. out. I know, sold out. Which is both good and bad. It is. It's good that it's sold out, but, man, they, I think they would have sold a whole bunch more if they had more. Yeah, I think, uh, I, well, yeah. it, was, it was a, all those thoughts went through my mind, too. Yeah, and so uh, one of the things that, that I saw on sort of one of the little display cases at the end of the end of the aisle was the wine bible mm-hmm. the, the the precursor to the to the beer bible and i looked and it's like hey there's the wine bible because i actually never seen it before i said there's the wine bible that that's what brought about the beer bible and uh i my attention was drawn elsewhere and i turned around literally 30 seconds later and it was gone wow Someone had taken it off so i was thinking wow these kinds of books sell good now so anyway they do. Uh, congratulations on being sold out of pals but uh, uh hopefully next year they'll stock more yeah Let's yes. Let's hope that would that would be good. So uh, the topic of today's podcast is uh, one of the most important beer styles in world history, uh, and the first international super style, which is porter and its progeny stout. That's right. Uh, it's possibly the most fascinating beer style the world has ever produced, or at least has the most fascinating story. And Jeff is going to uh, regale us with the, the story. So uh, we will get to that. But first, of course, our new format. Takes oh, yeah. us to the news. To the news. We should have a music cue here, like something newsy, you know? Yeah, if we, had a, if we had a good producer, oh, we, could, we could have a nice little yeah, jingle right here. That's right. Unfortunately, we're pretty low tech. Yeah. The producer needs to get a raise. The producer needs to, yeah. If I got a raise, I might think about it. So, yeah. All right. Well, we'll just send me home with a, with a, with some of the special beers from your larder and I'll think about it. Okay. <laughs> All right, so what's going on in the beer world? Well, uh, we it's been a little bit uh, since we last podcast, so you'd think that we'd have a lot to report on. Um, there, But it also co- coincided with the holiday, so there, uh, there wasn't a ton. One yes. interesting thing was uh, we've been tracking Anheuser-Busch InBev's uh, acquisitions and moves, Spree, yeah. which have been active. And, and right at the end of the year, they bought uh, three breweries in a kind of end-of-the-year buying spree they bought. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, Arizona's Four Peaks, which is one of Arizona's most established breweries. Mm. Um, a new brewery in London called Camden Town. And uh, Breckenridge in Colorado, which is a brewery I know you're familiar yeah, with. Yeah, Breckenridge is the one I heard about, but I hadn't actually heard about the other two. Yep. And that was it was three breweries in five days. So, so they show no signs of slowing down on this acquisition st- streak. They're, they're amassing quite 
an amazing uh, lineup of uh, brewers. It's going to be hard to keep track of them all pretty soon. Yeah, that's right, and I think probably not being able to keep track of them is part of uh, ABI's strategy, you know, to make sure that they yeah, just that, sort of blend in. And that's right. Yeah, good point. Uh, the other thing that, that I know that's going on, uh, or at least is rumored to be going on, is that uh, New Belgium Brewing is uh, shopping itself around, looking for potentially for a buyer. Yes, that's right. That's what I, I heard too, and, and it seems at the r- level of rumor right now, but uh, a lot of rumor going on. Yeah, en- enough rumor that I was contacted by a, uh, a reporter asking for uh, comment on that. But when I was talking to you about this, you had, had an interesting take about the fact that uh, New Belgium is... Uh, uh, employee-owned, they're uh, an ESOP, so an employee stock ownership program. Yeah, uh, and you mentioned full sale. So tell me what you were what you were talking about. Well, what you know, what we what you think about with the ESOP is it's a wonderful way to uh, bequeath a brewery to the employees and and have it be uh, employee-run, and and it seems like a um, completely consonant with the spirit that many people in craft brewing hold of independence mm-hmm. and yep. um, just general uh, good goodness. Um, but it also means that once you do that, the employees can sell the brewery and at full sale, that's what they did. Private equity company came along and the the employees and imagine working in a, at a brewery, maybe you're a keg washer, maybe you're a brewer, maybe you're, uh, the marketing person. Um, but you're also the owner and somebody offers you. Uh, a buyout, you're going to earn a fair amount of money on the buyout, and then you're probably also going to retain your job because they're not going to fire you and hire somebody else to do that job. So the incentive looks pretty good. So it's potentially a nice little payday. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that uh, being uh, somewhat different from just sort of an outside owner, someone who just holds stock in, I don't know, the Breckenridge Brewing Company, if if it was a public company, I'm not even sure. Uh, uh, yeah, if you're... if if you're an employee owner, um, being able to sort of get this payday now rather than waiting till much later, I can, right. I, I suppose I can see that, that you might make you a little more um, uh, eager to sell. So perhaps we'll find that uh, New Belgium is, in fact, being acquired soon. Yeah, and it might be interesting to see if, if ESOPs are less popular with, with uh, breweries in the future, if, if the owners are creating ESOPs to kind of maintain their independence and, and pass a brewery along. If it looks like they don't last but a few years before they get bought out, uh, brewer, uh, owners may not be as excited to do that. Yeah, we'll yeah, see. that's a good point. We'll see. All right. Uh, that's basically it, as far as I know. Yeah, uh, slow times. I'm sure we will have more news the next time we come out, because it's a new year, a um, lot happening again as people are leaving the holidays, so we'll keep our eyes on the news feed. All right. So, Turning to the main topic of the pod, uh, one of the things that uh, we've talked about recently is uh, this relative dearth of uh, porters on the market. When you and I were youngsters, uh, <laughs> way back when, right? Uh, sort of the, the beginning of craft, brew, uh, craft brewing, uh, you and I drank a lot of porters and stouts. Uh, and it was kind of one of the signature styles, I think, of the early craft brewing uh, uh uh, movement and it seems to have uh, been on the wane. Yeah, we saw. Uh, I, I saw online somebody posted a, a, a graph of uh, from the Nielsen company who tracks beer sales, and mm-hmm. um, only one percent of the sales they they had uh, beer styles um, uh, sales by beer styles, and only one percent of the sales were porters and stouts weren't even on the list. So it um, really caught my attention that this this is a big change from the late 80s, early 90s when we were first starting to drink beer and 
um, and you found porters and stouts everywhere. Right, yeah. And so you, being the author of the Beer Bible, uh, know quite well that uh, the history of stouts is uh, both rich and fascinating. And in fact, that stout was, uh, sorry, porter was the uh, uh, first real super uh, style of beer, the, uh, the, glo the global uh, king. So uh, why don't you uh, start us off with the, with the history of the style and tell us where it came from and, and why. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, I can rattle on about different styles and their histories and they all seem equally fascinating to me. But I think this was, is actually, in a narrative sense, one of the most interesting uh, beer styles. Uh, it, it, it involves uh, both the, the kind of um, brewing uh, restrictions and mm -hmm. uh, conditions, and then it coincides with, with some really fascinating history. Um, so economic history as well. So. Yes, and economic history, which we'll let you jump in on so that I don't just <laughs> drone on forever. The, just to get started, um, back in the uh, 1600s, um, malting tech was pretty pretty poor, mm. and so uh, brownish, brackish beers were really common. Right, and um, just because of crude malting techniques. Yeah, and uh, they they didn't really uh, know how to pale malt things mm. so well then. Right, um, there's some question about how well they understood pale malting, but it was not common in any case. And so there was a, a kind of a brown style of beer that was common, and um, that evolved into this style at about the early 1700s that was called Porter, uh, and it was the first iteration of a style that went through many, many iterations. Um, and it was popular with uh, the people who delivered the, uh, who took the, the cargo off the, the, the boats in uh, uh, the River Thames there in London mm -hmm. and delivered them around. They're called ticket porters. And this style of beer was pretty popular with them. Uh, and it was made with the thing that really characterized there are two things here that made this beer interesting from, from a, a brewing perspective. Right. One, it was brewed with this weird uh, kind of malt called brown malt. Right. And it was the, the least high quality of, of all the malts. Um, it was. It was it was smoked over kind of a smoky fire, mm -hmm. and it, you, they used high temperature, so it 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 it, it uh, got kind of scorched, and the right. descriptions of it was like scorched and crumbly, and I think it made the beer taste scorched and crumbly and gross too. Right. The interesting thing is they were making this beer mostly out of brown malt, not out out of anything else, and and we know now that uh, if you use a, a darker malt, you're going to get way fewer fermentables. Right. Um, they were pretty big beers. Uh, there's a lot of myth about the uh, the way that these beers were brewed, um, but they were uh, put together in from the from. Uh, they started with a party guile, uh -huh. which if you go back to our very first pod, right. you remember how the party guile goes. Uh, people would create the mash, pull some liquid off, pour more water in, do another mash, pull that off, and then eventually blend all those together. Right. In porters, they didn't blend them all together. They took all those mashes and made one big batch. Okay. And that's why sometimes you see the word entire referring uh -huh. to porters, uh, sometimes spelled with an I, right. um, in entire. Uh, it meant it was the entire batch of all those those guiles. So let me just stop you for a second because I have uh, uh, one comment and one question. Yep. The first comment is, so the, the, the story that uh, Porter got its name from uh, people who carried stuff around is not apocryphal. It's actually true. That part is true. There is some apocrypha here, though. Uh, there's, there's. You'll, you'll read a lot of uh, in a lot, a lot of cases that there was a one brewer who kind of 
started all this. His name uh, was Ralph Harwood. Uh-huh. And uh, the historian Martin Cornell, who's done a lot of work on English styles, did a wonderful debunking of, of this whole history. And the, the narrative of Ralph Harwood is that he, used, he, he made beer out of three threads uh-huh. to create entire beer, uh-huh. uh, which turns out, so apparently there were uh, blendings that, were ha- that, that was happening post, uh, post-production. Sometimes right. mo- it sounds like it was mostly at the brewery, but it was, sometimes it did actually happen at the pub. Uh-huh. Uh, Harwood was a publican, and the story that uh, was about him was that he was blending the, the, three, the three threads, three different beers, and creating porter. You read this everywhere. Right. Uh, it's, it's not true. What Cornell found was that a writer writing about 100 years later, so uh, in the early... Uh, 19th century, right. got it all wrong. <laughs> but because he was writing 200 years ago now, right. uh, it's that story is so well established. Taken as historical truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's that actually leads right into my question, which was, what were the other common beer styles brewed when Porter came about? What 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 did beer? What was beer like at the time, and how was Porter different? Wow. I do not have the beer Bible in front of me, and I researched this stuff four years ago, man. <laughs> I finally stumped the author of the beer Bible. It's a, it's a, you got me a little chin music here. Well, I, I can give you a, 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 an answer that is not quite as accurate as you'll find in the beer Bible if you read it. Or that's, well, not that's as, right. You've got you to gotta, you save something. You've got to re- leave something for people to want to. That's right. I should say it's not as complete. Um, England was really late to the hop uh, party. Mm-hmm. So as late as the 1500s, uh, they were still making unhopped beer. They were still making group beer. And even after uh, that period, they had two different kinds of uh, beers. That they, like one was called ale and one was called beer. Right. And, and beer was stronger and heavily hopped, and ale was lighter and unhopped. And they right. still had a lot of these traditions uh, going on. So they had um, kind of crazy beer. And Martin Cornell, again, has written about some of these old interesting beers like Devon White Ale, which was made with eggs and uh-huh. wheat, and it was kind of um, this weird flowery thing that um, it was made with, like, it was made with flour, so, mm-hmm. and the thing, it turned out but, to be kind of But flowery. early porters were made with hops? Yes, they were. Okay. So uh, you could sort of maybe think of early porters as the first uh, uh, big, um, uh, how do I want to put it? what we now sort of think of as beer. Porter was like the first style in coming from England. Another interesting thing about this is commercial brewing was not nearly as, as right. common or established as domestic brewing. So it is a little bit hard to track all the different things that people sure. were making in their houses. Um, England uh, became a commercial, brew- commercial brewing Really, it was the porter brewing that, that brought commercial brewing online. Right. Um, okay. So let's keep let's keep going the narrative there. So yeah, and that's so porters is early style brewed with brown malts, which were kind of crude and cheap. Uh, and then uh, the the porter brewers started doing an interesting thing. They started putting them in uh, wooden barrels, sometimes giant wooden barrels. Mm-hmm. And and over the over the course of the centuries, they got bigger and bigger and bigger, and they got so big they couldn't even contain the porter. And there's a famous flood in 1814 that killed a bunch of people because all this beer flooded into the streets, and that was really bad. But um, early on, they, they didn't use... They, those grew over time. And the interesting thing about that is, now, we, as we all know, uh, there are resident microflora in uh, wood. It's very common. And in fact, the word Brettanomyces, uh, that we all know is a wild yeast, was first cultured from one of these uh, old barrels. I don't think it was a porter barrel because it was much later. Um, and the, the scientist who did that named it 
uh, Bretonomyces because it's Breton is Britain. Uh. Myces is fungus, so it's the British fungus. Um, uh, okay. So it was very common then to have these wooden uh, uh, casks. They were all they were all infected, and there was actually a, another type of beer that was common at the time called stock ale, mm -hmm. which was aged, usually strong, usually hopped ale. Uh, that would go completely dry and completely still. And they would take that and usually blend that at the pubs. So they used that technique with porters. And uh, what an interesting thing happened. So they were putting into porters what they probably didn't realize was fairly uh, under-fermented, um, heavy uh, right. beer with the, that had all this, because they were using Residual brown sugar, malt, yeah. because it's got all this crazy sugar in there. Mm -hmm. uh, and it probably tastes terrible. It's smoky and gross because it's made with the cheapest malts. But you leave it in the, one of these uh, wooden casks for a year. And magical those, things happen. And magical things happen. The brat come out, and they start chewing away, and they are much more voracious than normal uh, Saccharomyces, so they can actually eat those hard, ugly sugars. More that, complex sugars, yeah. Yeah. So probably two things happen, and we don't really have... We're just, this is, we have to surmise this, but um, we, we can surmise that um, uh, the beer got stronger mm -hmm. because they continued to ferment the Brettanomyces, and we do know definitely that it got better. And actually, Porter was praised for how wonderful it was, and, and people always talked about it as being this really rich, port-like or sherry-like, uh, very refined and sophisticated beer, hmm. which almost certainly it didn't start out as. I mean, uh, the descriptions of the brown malt mean that it's impossible to right. imagine it was it was like So that. I imagine that became sort of de rigueur, like you had to, you had to age your Porter uh, in order to sell it. That's right. And this is where we can uh, get into a little bit of the economics, because economics started to really inflect why this beer was possible to brew at the scale that it became, mm -hmm. uh, started to be brewed at. Right. Um, eventually, this beer would, would be shipped uh, all over the world. Beer is a great thing to ship, because if you've got an empire and you're bringing stuff back from the colonies... Um, you need something to send out, so right. it's great to send a, 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 dis, a, a consumable like beer out. Yep. Uh, and English brewers had a lot of beer, so they were sending it out. And this this was this was the first style that got sent out. And and they had so many ships that they really needed to be able to brew a lot of this stuff. So we're we're talking about what period now? We're talking about uh, the. I'm kind of fudging. So there's a there's a big brewing change that happens. Um, a little bit bef bef uh, before the the popularity mm -hmm. kicked in, but um, in the 19th century, right. London porters uh, traveled the globe and went all over the place, and um, they made that's that's when the great technological revolution happened, which right. we can which we can talk about. And that's also when the British Empire was peaking and yeah, growing rapidly and then peaking. So some really important things happened. Steam engine happened. Right. Or steam power happened. Uh, brewers learned how to uh, Im improve their technology. They, they developed a thing called this uh, saccharometer. I don't know if that's how you say it. It's essentially a hydrometer. They mm -hmm. learned they, that that was when they discovered that their their uh, uh, beers were not very well fermented if they were made with this terrible brown malt. It's <laughs> um, a way to measure the sugar content in in liquid. Right. Uh, but but steam power was really the big thing, and and. Every, every, Early on, the breweries thought that they would have the steam power and it would help them move the liquids around, and they, that was basically a really hard thing to do. Right. Uh, and so breweries were always really uh, Im limited by how much of the water they could move around. Yeah. With Heavy steam, stuff. yeah. So with steam, all of a sudden you can move a lot around, and then they realized that they could push 
a lot of beer through the uh, brewery and they exploded. They went from being like 10,000 barrel breweries, a giant London brewery would have been a 10,000 barrel brewery to being like a 100,000 barrel brewery. Yeah. Really, really large brewery. Yeah, I remember uh, this from our trip to the Brewing Museum at Britain-on-Trent Yeah, where they talked about the Industrial Revolution sort of basically allowing what we would think of as a modern brewery that uh, brews in a central location and ships beer all around. Until that point, as I understood, it was almost all brewed on site uh, or brewed very locally. Yeah, and and uh, and in small scale, of course. And in small scale, and and they didn't have the capacity to to brew it in bigger scales. Uh, and and when they, it was interesting to read about this for the book. Uh, when they started the the steam power, they weren't thinking that it would actually improve the 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 volume. They didn't think it would have any effect on the volume. They just thought it would. The, the process would be easier. And as they started using these steam engines, the first adopters, the early adopters, grew like crazy. And the breweries who had not invested that money, which is really expensive at the time to invest in the steam in steam technology, um, they found that they were not competing because these other breweries were growing you know, yeah. huge, the Barclay Perkins and the, the giant uh, London Trumans and, and others, these giant London breweries. Um, so... Before we go too far away from the, the brown uh, malt, we have a yes. special beer here that we should drink. Yeah, uh, so we have four, four beers. beers we're going to taste uh, today as we go through our, our uh, historical tour um, of uh, porters and stouts. And so, yeah, the first one is perhaps the most uh, uh, representative of early porters. We hope... So, and I've never had this beer, uh, and I, there's not actually that much written about it. This beer was given to me by uh, Tim Holt, who is uh, the editor of uh, uh, Brewery History, a, a magazine in London. Uh-huh. And one of the uh, people like Martin Cornell write in it and others. It's one of the most interesting magazines out there if you're interested in history. Uh, and I asked him, this, this means it's, it's, it's a beer by the Colonel Brewery, which is in London. So the... the, the the provenance is correct. The we're, provenance we're is back correct. back to London. Back to London. And it's called an Imperial Brown Stout. Uh, and we'll get to with this nomenclature, stout and porter. At this, at this point, I think basically we, shouldn't, we should consider stouts and porters as one category, yeah. no matter what. And in, and in, this, and in this era, for sure, uh, we will talk, we'll talk, a little, talk a little bit about what stout and porter meant. But um, I, I take this to mean that this, was made with, that this beer is made with brown malt, certainly not as low grade as the brown malt that was being made in the 1700s not yes um but let's try it and see what it tastes like yeah let's 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 crack it open i don't know really anything about it this brewery does is does a terrible job of uh describing the way they make their beers what's in their beers or what they were thinking of so here we go with the crack last Uh, time i had a kernel beer we were in fact in london that's right at the great beer bar the rake and that was when uh the Colonel was one of, I don't know, 15 breweries in London, and now there are dozens and dozens and dozens. Yeah, so. it's, it's amazing, huh? Wow. We poured it out, and it is um, black. It is actually not brown. Um, they describe the old brown porters as being more bla- brown than black. We'll talk a little bit about that again. Yeah. But the head is like uh, chocolate ice cream. Yes, it is. <laughs> very thick and very brown, too. Yes, yeah. yeah. Hmm, smells very bready. Doesn't actually smell super chocolatey or super roasty. Mm-hmm. Actually, smells a little bit chocolatey. Bready and chocolatey, not roasty. You want to smell it? Yes, I do. Oh, yeah. 
this brewery is one of the early uh, English craft breweries, um, which date back uh, no longer than than ten or fifteen years. So um, we're not talking very old, but uh, right. they were, and certainly in London. All right, let's give this a taste. Um, wow, <laughs> that is uh, brackish. Yeah, it's very thick. And it's just... So I think that's the brown malt we're, while I'm tasting. It is um, rough, uh, acrid. Yep. It has a kind of interesting texture. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I would call that. Now, this, this beer has not uh, been exposed to wild yeast at all. So we're, we're not getting the effect that uh, you would get if you had a a beer aged for a year in a wooden barrel that had bread in it. Right. But this one is a really uh, big beer. It's a 9.6, you may have mentioned. I don't, um, I don't know if I did. It's thick. It, it is. It's thick. It's, yeah, rough. It um, is rough. I wish I would. I don't mean that pejoratively either. I just mean that's the sort of the, the malt characteristic is. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's. It's what they they intended to show that I, w- yep. I really would like to. Uh, I don't know if they do one that that, that is bread aged, but I would love to see the same beer mm. go through the barreling process, see what what kind of change happens. Yeah, I can imagine. So this is uh, clearly a beer that was that was. Uh, it's not uh, it's not the same kind of beers that they were brewing in the uh, in the 18th century. This right. it has it clearly has pale malts in order to get it up to 9.6. Mm-hmm. Um, so and the, I think that I I can't imagine that they make brown malts as nasty as the ones that are described in the material. Um, so it's probably nowhere near as harsh. Yeah. But it is pretty smoky and it is yeah and harsh. <laughs> uh, even still, yeah, it's got a bit of astringency. Um, yeah, it's a little bit. Yeah, it's, that's how I would describe it. It's it's a bit smoky. It's a bit astringent. Uh, it's quite a mouthful. Yeah. Mm. But it's good. <laughs> it is pretty good. Uh, you definitely we're gonna we're gonna end up with uh, an American porter that is a, an extremely different beer. Yeah, and um, this is one of those kind of beers that would probably not be uh, a commercial dynamo. Uh, it is big and smoky. And yeah, yeah. No, this is a specialty beer. I would, as I would describe it. Yeah. Uh, so. All right, so so just uh, just to sort of um, recap, so uh, porters became popular. They figured out how to uh, make them uh, much more palatable and flavorful. In fact, quite delightful by aging uh, them in barrels. Uh, then the industrial revolution came around, steam power came around, then breweries started quickly to harness this uh, this new technology and use it to scale both scale up their breweries and also to ship their beer. Right. And then at the same time, the British Empire was at its peak. Uh, the Age of Sail had been full. <laughs> Actually, the Age of Steam was coming on now, and so the shipping they were shipping far and wide um, this beer. So this beer became sort of uh, uh, present globally. Yes. And one other uh, interesting thing uh, that that inflected this whole process was uh, while they they could these breweries could grow. Uh, quite large. They had one uh, massive uh, barrier to growth, which was they had to find 
wood wood uh, wooden tons to hold all their beer for a year or longer. Right, big giant vats. Big giant vats, and and they and these this just required space. So um, folks like Martin Cornell, Cornell found uh, descriptions of the warehouses all over London that were absolutely chock full of, of wooden, <laughs> wooden vessels <laughs> to because, hold all the porter. Yeah, because there's they're all of a sudden exploding, and they've got all this porter, and. Uh, you know, you gotta. You just gotta. If you're brewing a hundred thousand barrels, you gotta have a hundred thousand barrels sitting for a year. That's a lot of beer. Yeah. Um, and as you as you said very quickly, there was a very famous disaster yeah. uh, where it must have been what thousands, hundreds of tens of thousands of gallons of porter came cascading down. Yeah, it was so bad it drowned. Town Court Road or something like that, right? Yeah, it drowned people. It what what happened was it was in one of these warehouses, and one uh, of the very very large. Uh, We'd call it a fooder now, but uh, I'm not sure what what name they had for them then. Uh-huh. It burst, and then uh, a cascade happened. That the 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 beer poured out of that and smashed into other casks, and they all started bursting. Right. And so then this massive flood rushed out, and it was so so high. It was uh, like six feet high or something. It drowned some people, and and there was even one poor sap who uh, everybody raced out to get to get it because it was free beer, um, and somebody even died of alcohol poisoning. Actually, that's Possibly apocryphal, but I think it. That's good. It, it, it's it's a good story, nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like that would have happened. All this free beer rushing out. You, yeah. <laughs> this you is think Dickin- wouldn't just ignore it. Yeah, this is the Dickensian period, so there's <laughs> a lot of poverty. Uh, so anyway, uh, then the, in, the so then now we have uh, we have one kind of porter, and this porter is being shipped around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then an interesting thing. At, thing happens in uh, 1817, I believe is the date. Mm-hmm. Uh, a man develops a new way to uh, uh, malt dark dark malt uh, barley. Mm-hmm. And uh, his name is Daniel Wheeler, and he develops what many home brewers will recognize. Uh, he develops his patented system for making black malt, which became known as black patent malt. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was about the same time they had learned about the uh, the saccharometer. So in London, they started uh, using uh, more pale malt and also this dark roasted malt, Wheeler's uh, black malt. Uh, this was also after the the beer had been shipped around. Uh, Porter, Porter started sailing around the world in uh, the late 1700s. It hit, the, it hit North America in 1780. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Ireland uh, and Scotland in the 1760s, Sweden in 1790, Australia 1800, and then other places. It was in five continents uh, in this period of time. So by the time it hit Dublin, uh, it was very popular there. The water was similar. uh, uh, The water was not totally dissimilar, actually. Mm -hmm. Let's forget the water. Okay. All you brewing nerds, forget you. Forget. I, <laughs> I walked down that blind, blind alley. Uh, but the, the so an interesting thing happened with when we, when Wheeler came out with his new technology. Mm-hmm. The Irish basically got rid of the brown malt. They thought that it was kind of nasty, and they just dumped it. And right. so they made they started making their porters out of like what we would how we would make beers now, mostly pale malt, and then, and a, then a little black patent. Yeah, and a little black plat, patent. So it it lacked this quality that we just had in this kernel beer of this smoky, rough, astringent quality, and it had mo- a much more what we'd probably consider a modern flavor. Yeah. And these now went on two tracks. So now for the first time we have an Irish 
style and an English style, and they're they're very different. Okay, so the Irish style is what we more consider now, sort of the the, the pale malt base with a black patent malt to create a really black but uh, not terribly heavy beer. Right. Oh, and that's another thing too. It's a good point. Um, that when the when the uh, after Daniel Wheeler, they the the brown porters kind of became more black, even in England. So they, right. were, they, were, they were more like what we'd recognize now as black. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then one of the most most famous uh, wrinkles in in this story is the uh, beer that they were shipping beginning in the uh, 1820s to Russia. Uh, we all know about Russian Imperial Stout. Um, this was the beer uh, they made order in different strengths and the strongest porter was called stout porter stout was a modifier that was right. used for a whole bunch of different beers it didn't have anything to do with uh porter itself you could have a a pale stout mm-hmm. it just meant strong right uh and uh the stout porter was being shipped to uh catherine the great the court of catherine the great they mm-hmm. really loved it there they loved their super strong beer apparently they just they love strong beer it's i mean they like their vodka now. They were kind of, I it's guess. A, yeah, it's a cold place. You know, yeah. Long winters, short days. Right. So some of the best and most famous uh, porters are being shipped to uh, Russia. And that's that, that lineage actually continues today in a, in a, in a kind of slightly varied style uh-huh. uh, called Baltic porters. Right. These are the beers that we'll find in, uh, mainly Poland is like a big producer. I know there's one in Russia, Baltica, mm-hmm. um, and there is one in Scandinavia, although it actually tastes much more like an English stout. The right. the Baltic porters now that we have, um, they over time began to be affected by the lager revolution. They were still brewed strong. They were still made uh, black and roasty, but mm-hmm. they started to be lagered. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so they were, uh, they kind of evolved that way, and they developed um, the, this this kernel beer that we had is is you kept talking about how thick it was. Mm-hmm. Well, the 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 uh, when you lager a beer, uh, it uh, these are these are strong beers. They're made in the modern way, so they ferment out much more clearly, right. cleanly. But also the lagering smooths them out and kind right. of rounds them out, and and uh, it's a slightly different presentation. So um, that the the style that we know as Baltic porter came from the Russian imperial style that was sent to. Russia, and then eventually, um, when that system broke down, they started making it themselves in the region. Right. So let's just go through the nomenclature a little bit. So, so porter was the original beer. Stout porter was a little bit stronger version of porter originally, uh, and now we see stout and porter used differentially in the U.S. But it's never very clear exactly what you mean, and it's I think of them fairly similarly. I often expect the stout maybe to be a little heavier and the porter to be a little bit less, but Right, and a little bit, maybe a little stronger. Uh, and then uh, imperial porter or imperial stouts generally mean something a lot bigger and stronger. Right. Uh, in the modern usage. And that term has been borrowed by other styles. <laughs> that term has been borrowed by other styles. So you can get imperial IPAs and imperial pales and goodness knows what. Right. Uh, I think you mentioned somewhere imperial Hefeweizen. Yeah, somebody <laughs> made an imperial Hefeweizen once. That was, uh, that was not a good idea. Misguided. <laughs> uh, but the but the the moniker stout originally is very similar to like the best bitter the bitter and then best bitter and extra special bitter really describing just different uh, um, uh, levels of uh, of um, uh, strength. Yep, exactly right. So and, and this this uh, this becomes uh, more 
uh, pronounced in the uh, the 19th century as as uh, um, the style begins to change a little bit, and you start to see different expressions of porters, and then this 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 style, this word stout, starts to develop in the 19th century into its own style, and it has, and then it follows its own course. This is on this is in England, um, in in uh, Ireland, mm-hmm. the porter there were still porters, uh, and uh, being made, but um, companies like Guinness started calling their beers mostly stout. So okay. uh, fairly early on, I have this written down somewhere. Um, Guinness was made. Eighty percent of Guinness's product was uh, was called stout. They were, and only twenty percent they were calling porter. Um, right, and actually, as as sort of a uh, an indication of how much the term stout has lost its its specific meaning. Uh, all of the beer that most people in the U.S. probably encounter is called Guinness Stout, even the stuff that they serve on draft, which is quite a v- light right. beer. Yeah. It was four, 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 four and a half percent or something like that, right? Right, so. yeah. Uh, so uh, by 18, it's 1840 that 80% of their beer they were calling stouts. Right. Um, so, so it just became sort of a term on its on its own and kind of lost its its meaning of stronger beer. It did, and it, and in England that happened too. And uh, we will get into uh, some of the more exotic because this is when the story really gets, I think, in, in my view, the most exotic the uh-huh. way the where the the direction stouts go. Um, but maybe we should have should we try this uh, Baltic porter while we're, while we yeah talk? since we mentioned Baltic porter let's let's have a Baltic porter. Uh, so what do we have here? We have I I was hoping there's a couple of really good products like good in in terms of uh, I would say some of the best beers available anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is called Zywick or Zywich. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another is Ocasim. Um that, that one I think is more well known. I think Zywich is the better of the two. Okay. Uh, but I couldn't find them. Are they both Polish? They are both Polish. Okay. And this one is another Polish one, which is. M- more easy to find, and I think of it as not quite to their level. That's and it is the Black Boss. Black Boss. So we will see if my memory serves, or if maybe this is really sublime, and we're about to find out. And this is, uh, I again, I don't know how you would pronounce it, but the Browar, which I assume is presumably in Polish is brewery, and yep. Witnicza. Sure. Or Witnicza. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to sound all smart by saying Witnicza. I know. It's Iwitch. I, I threw the... <laughs> the thing in there too and who knows maybe you don't even say z- the z is uh all right let's pour some you and i have actually both had this beer before you not surprisingly but me somewhat surprisingly it is dark but it's actually not as black as the kernel that's true it's not as it pours out not nearly as thick not nearly as thick the head isn't nearly as sort of ice creamy as you called it yeah um, in fact, it's dissipating quite rapidly. And Which is not super shocking given that we're drinking this beer is also crazy big, uh, 9.4%, so only two-tenths of a percent lower than the uh, the kernels. And it's much more mild on the nose. I'll let you smell that before I give you my tasting thoughts since I've already... Yeah, it's, it is quite uh, quite a bit different, too. It's got some caramel in there mm-hmm. and... Uh, yep. Yeah, it's just kind of a gentle smelling beer. Yeah, and so um, I've already had a sip. I'll have another one. Oh. It's very smooth. It's actually quite a sweet beer, um, I think. Maybe that's partly 
in comparison to the kernel. <laughs> no, I think you're right. And this is this is one thing with, that is different than the two other brands I mentioned. Those those brands are both uh, quite uh, roasty. And in fact, Zywitch is so roasty that it almost tastes a little sour. It's mm -hmm. like the roastiness goes all the way around until it gets to another flavor altogether. Right. Um, it's really palatable and smooth. And this one is actually... The sweetness, you're right, is uh, pronounced, and it almost it can it can, in to my palate sort of conceals the fact that it's a lager. I would have a hard time. I was about to ask you: Is this? Do you, you know this one is lagered? I don't know for a fact, but um, but most are. Yeah, this the Polish uh, brewing scene is the historical one is uh, a lager brewing mm -hmm. country. The one thing that I will say about this that is typical is it's got a little bit of a licorice. Mm. note in there and i have yeah, noticed catch. i've noticed that in others too it seems like a typical flavor that you find in uh, uh, Pol uh baltic porters that are i really like and it, and it goes especially well with uh roasty flavors a little licorice it can seem sweet um but with roastiness it it's a nice undercurrent and i don't think it's actually i think it comes from some alchemy of the, yeah. the malts and hops uh, yeah. malts and yeast and stuff i don't i don't think it they're not adding licorice i don't believe yeah, I like this, but I uh, but I would prefer a slight slight more roasty flavor to to counteract what I find it a little bit of a cloying sweetness. Yeah, I I agree. Um, it's what a nine point four percent beer. You could easily drink quite a bit without knowing. Yeah, you you can, and that is that is the case with all of these. <laughs> and um, uh, I still think Black Boss is worth people trying, but if you can oh, yeah. find other versions, it's, I think, a little bit more interesting. And they are an insane value. I went down to my, <laughs> my local bottle shop, Belmont Station, and I bought this. It's a 500 milliliter bottle, and it was $2.49. So, with the, of course, five cent nickel deposit, but um, that's, that's a lot for a for a nine and a half percent beer shipped from Poland in a big bottle for two fifty. is not bad. That reminds me, my, my English stepfather at one point uh, found some, I can't remember if it was Slovakian or maybe Polish wine ah, uh, yeah. that was sort of semi-palatable, but it sold for something like $2.50 <laughs> a bottle. <laughs> Boy, he drank a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, but no, I shouldn't flag this off too much. It's actually um, no, I would, an, enjoy, an enjoyable beer, definitely worth, worth worth a try, especially at that price point. At that price point, it's, it's hard to beat. Um. All right, so uh, here we are. Uh, we're Whizzing through the 1800s, uh, yeah. black patent malt has been in, invented. It's starting to be used in, uh, more widely in in, in uh, porters and stouts. And Guinness has famously, uh, uh, I guess, I, typical of other breweries in Ireland, Ireland as well, um, started to use black patent malt and pale malts and, and ditch the brown malt. Yeah. So then, the, as the 20th or the 19th century. Uh, advances, uh, an important thing happens. In 1880, the uh, government passes a law that allows English brewers to begin to use, uh, I, actually it's probably British brewers, but um, I'm not really sure what happened in Scotland. Anyway, <laughs> in, in England for sure, uh, to, be, to use sugar, which they had not formerly been able to do. Ah. And so this had a, a kind of a unexpected effect, at least it, unexpected to me it it lo it it was the start of the uh, great gravity drop mm -hmm. um actually started here uh, it was it was accelerated dramatically by the world wars but it did actually start at the tail end of the uh 19th century and it happened among stouts particularly this was a really um pronounced case and there was this weird association that started to 
crop up with these beers with healthfulness. Mm -hmm. And there was this weird fad. And so you saw all these different kinds of, uh, it's kind of like what we're seeing now where they would put all kinds of weird stuff in the stouts. And uh, it wasn't so much because they were trying to appeal gastronomically to people's palates, but because they were trying to prove how healthful they were. And they would even have doctors in the advertisements recommending these uh, beers. Um, and so they used the things that they were that were considered very healthful at the time. So they used lactose and made milk stouts. Uh-huh. They used oats and made oatmeal stout. Right. Um, they made stouts uh, for... Uh, Nursing women, so these were low-alcohol stouts. Uh-huh. It became associated with like a tonic to bring back your your health and right. your, your 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 vigor. So they would right. they, they they made a thing. This is a classic 19th century term: invalids stout. <laughs> if you gave, if, you, if you were uh, if you needed a little pick me up, you've been in bed too long. It would help you get your strength back. Mm-hmm. Um, and it led to things like uh, oyster stouts was a later uh, invention. Uh, oh, so oyster stouts go all the way back to. Late 1800s in England, okay. Yeah, this is when oyster stouts come along, and um, it's because, again, meat was really healthy, you know, it gave you... Yeah, exactly. It gave you vigor and strength. And, and, and slightly so, rare. And slightly rare, so uh, they worked that in there, and there was even one case, and again, a shout out to Martin Cornell, he found this, a uh, brewery called Mercer made a stout that was made with meat, which it called, it was Mercer's Meat Stout, and it talked about the... Oh, lovely. It, how it... Proudly contained solids in the <laughs> stout. <laughs> oh, yummy! Yeah, yeah. So that, so that was uh, as as the Bring century. New meaning to the term liquid lunch. Yeah, that's right. And uh, um, and then and then a, a, just a general style came along called sweet stout. Uh, many of these were were kind of in that sweet stout, and some of them. They, they, the sweet stouts came out, especially after the, sh- the sugar uh, was allowed, um, and they would use unfermentable sugars and other things. So mm-hmm. The lactose would help make it sweet, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 it actually led a little bit to the demise of, of this whole this whole thing because uh, the stout started to become ghettoized, just like grandma's beer, you right. know, healthful tonic. It was no longer thought of as cool and young and healthy. Uh, it was right. for like nursing women and grandmas, right. and. Um, and that was actually not so good, not so good for branding, apparently. Right, right. Uh, and meanwhile, over in uh, Dublin, you had the the Irish tradition developing, and I think uh, by this time uh, it was it was quite a bit different. And and you had the classic Dublin uh, stout was much more uh, roasty and. Mm-hmm. Uh, had more aggressive hopping. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 stout that we know is Guinness now. The the kind of final thing actually didn't come along until the 1930s when they started adding unmalted roasted barley, which is kind of the classic flavor that you get in Guinness. Uh, okay. um, that happened in in sometimes around maybe 1930, but I think I think it was just the last piece in an evolution that 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 was developing that created this kind of classic uh, Irish. Stout, which was selling really well in London too, so they were yeah. they were now actually op- at some point they opened a brewery in England and uh-huh. they were selling a lot of the stout back in uh, in in England and and did uh, the whole time. I mean, le- it, England has always been a good market for Guinness. Yeah, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna interject a little economics aside here. Yeah, since we're talking about both industrializations, scaling up of breweries, and the Guinness brewery. Thank God. Uh, uh, <laughs> we need some econ to break up this dry history. Yeah, well, this is one of this is one of these little 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 factoids that economists love to pop out. Um, one of the few things you can do to to entertain people at a party. Well, I suppose you can entertain you can entertain people who've had some kind of statistics or economics education. So, uh, if if you ever 
if you've ever had any uh, statistics training or econometrics training, you may be familiar with the student's T distribution, oh, yeah. uh, which is what we use to, to gauge statistical significance when you're looking at data. And so by statistical significance, you look at a, at a, uh, a measured value and you want to know, is this just part of a random process or is this something significantly different from, uh, um, uh, from a random process that you can sort of say is yes a unique um, and everybody wonders what, why student that's so weird yeah so exactly is the student's t distribution because uh it's for students uh well so that provenance is actually fascinating it actually comes from the guinness brewery it comes from a guy named william seeley gossett who uh had a number of jobs at the guinness brewery first he was an apprentice brewer and then became a head experimental brewer and finally a head brewer uh, at Guinness. But what was happening is Guinness was producing lots and lots of beer, and they were trying to figure out how, essentially, I think what, the way I think about it is you think about sort of quality control, quality assurance. You're brew brewing lots and lots of batches, and you want to know how to produce a consistent barrel of Guinness so that everybody can taste something similar along, along the way. Um, and so he started, and he, he was a sort of, took a very scientific uh, approach to it, and really wanted to think about uh, the uh, the way that you sort of do this sort of quality control, doing um, random sampling uh, and repeated sampling. Um, anyway, long long story short, he was doing it uh, under the auspices of the of the Guinness Brewery, um, and uh, he wanted to publish this uh, um, statistical technique, um, this, the student's distribution. But at the time, and explain what the the, the I, I think people may not immediately understand what you're talking about the student's t distribution, but it's actually a, a pretty basic concept that we all actually encounter and understand, right? Uh, yeah. So um, I didn't prepare to say this; I just actually cropped up as we were talking about this. So I'll, I'll do my best. Um, off, uh, off. The... <laughs> hey, isn't it great when we spring stuff on each each other and not uh, talk uh, about uh, it beforehand? Off the cuff. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, I, I think the easiest way to, to think about it is um, if if you take a bunch of uh, different uh, data points and you're wondering whether the observation that you've made is something, uh, I don't know, interesting, real, or is it just sort of some kind of random noise? So I'm trying to think of a good example. So if you're a brewer, maybe. Um, well, what about if, you're, if you uh, uh, poll people and they tell you that they like a certain uh, candidate and you, you have a, you know, that, like... Seventy percent like a candidate. So okay. That okay. Works. So that's so that's good. So that's a good uh, a good example polling since we're in the yeah. we're already starting the elect electoral cycle. Um, yeah. So you want to know whether sort of uh, opinions about uh, Donald Trump um, are something uh, real. Is this a real trend you're identifying that people are are identifying them their their um, like of of Donald Trump, or is this just some kind of randomness and it doesn't actually mean anything? So how do, how do you know? Well, uh, it's a combination, typically in statistics, of uh, repeated observations uh, and the, the amount of observations. So you always um, hear about something being statistically significant, uh, or or being um, uh, what's the term the pollsters use? Uh, the sample size is what we would say is big enough so that uh, these opinions can be sort of verified as uh, as something real and meaningful. Well, where does that come from? It actually comes from exactly what this guy's work did, which was to identify sort of what we mean by it and uh, and the statistical process uh, or the really the threat the, the statistical thresholds um, that uh, are. Are meaningful. I'm doing a really botched job of this, but uh, um, but I guess the best way to think about it is he developed a technique with which to measure 
uh, whether something is the, the likelihood that it's a valid result or some random thank you thing. Yes, that's right. Um, and he did it at the Guinness Brewery, and because he did it at the Guinness Brewery, they didn't want him to publish. He wanted to publish this, uh, but he, they didn't want to publish it under, under his own name. So he he uh, he published it under the name Student. Student. There and, it is. There it is. So uh, that was because he was uh, he was working at the Guinness Brewery. So the student's t distribution, which is now the fundamental way in which we measure statistical significance, and any undergraduate or even maybe even high school students now who are doing uh, any kind of statistics. That's the f just about the first thing you learn, and that comes from uh, the Guinness Brewery and from the great industrialization and, and growth of brewing. Well, by God, that means we should have a Guinness. So let's have a Guinness to celebrate Student and his and his accomplishments. Yeah, and it's actually true that the Guinness uh, Company was a leader in technological de uh, development for uh, decades and decades and decades. They did a bunch of incredibly cool stuff. Um, Back in the uh, twenty, the early twentieth century and into the mid twentieth century, they did a thing called the I think it was called the high low dispense system, uh, where they would have some old stale beer. So this kind of reminds me of the uh, stale beer that that the English used to have, uh, and then they would add add that to a, a batch of fresh uh, uh, stout, and so it would give it a nice bit of character, but it would also uh, keep it nice and lively and carbonated. Mm -hmm. And this, and when, and then at a certain point, it was a, it's a really convoluted system. And at a certain point, they thought, you know, we got to figure out a new system. This is just too baroque to be using in all these pubs. Mm -hmm. And that's when they developed the, nit the nitrogen pour. Ah. They were the they were the company that came up with nitro pours, right. and they did that because they wanted to replace this old convoluted system. Ah, okay, yeah. interesting. And they yeah, now and now they're sort of very famously associated with the nitro. The exactly, pour, and that's part of their whole. And when you buy, even when you buy a can, it'll have the widget in it to have the the nitro dispense, and that's you'll right. Get the and cascade. now they're marketing the nitro IPA, right? In fact, right, uh, which is basically just an IPA but with a little nitro widget, in, nitrogen filled widget in there. Yeah. Okay. So what we have here is the there are there's sort of like what three basic uh, varieties of Guinness you can buy commonly in the U.S. Yeah, regular draft Guinness, mm -hmm. which is the stuff you find at a at an Irish pub. Yeah, when you go get it. On on tap, almost certainly getting the the basic uh, Guinness, and that's also generally what you'll find when you get there, little cans with the nitro widget in it. Right, uh, and they also have a thing called Foreign Extra Stout, which is the sort of the beer that their breweries is uh, famous reputation is built on. It's a seven and a half percent big. Big burly stout, very right. uh, roasty, very complex. Mm -hmm. um, they only recently started selling that in the United States, maybe the last five years or so. Mm -hmm. um, but that has—that's a beer that's been around forever, and it's a kind of a legendary beer in, in the in the beer world. Right. And uh, and what you get if you uh, if you typically what you get if you buy Guinness in a bottle in the U.S. is this, which is the Guinness Extra Stout. Yeah, and I think this is a beer that's only brewed for the American market, and that's ah. that's not un. Uh, not atypical for Guinness. Nope. They they do beer, specific beer for all different markets, and uh, uh, this is the one we get. And actually, this is one of my favorites. And I buy this beer quite a bit. In fact, I bought this beer, I bought a six pack of this beer uh, a week ago. Uh, when was that for? Oh no, it was for uh, our our Christmas Eve dinner. Uh, I uh, bought Guinness Extra Stout because it's a great winter beer. And yeah. It's rich, and this it used to seem strong to me. I think it's only 6%, um, which does not seem strong to me anymore. 
but back in the day, that seemed pretty strong. And this has a wonderful uh, kind of um, acidity to it uh, that uh, is kind of evokes perhaps the old uh, wild yeast they might have used. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure where it comes from. I asked the brewmaster about it, and he uh, refu refused to tell me. We're going to have some quotes from him in a little bit. Um, yeah, he was kind of, they didn't like to talk, he didn't like to talk about his process too much at all. So I don't know where it comes from, but it's a wonderful balance of roast and kind of acidity that, that creates this uh, this beer. And I think actually that, that quality of roast and acidity might recall the old London porters uh, mm -hmm. in the way that you have those two things come together. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really nice beer. Yeah, it is a very nice beer. Some people um, don't like Guinness anymore because it's such a big company and um, it, People just don't like big companies, but uh, I I challenge people to go have a Guinness. It's true. It's stuff. interesting because it's it's sort of one of the big now considered one of the big beer companies, and almost all the others are based uh, have uh, built their reputations on uh, light lagers. So it's interesting that that Guinness was so successful. Uh, and when you were talking about the health benefits of Guinness, of course, Guinness famously you can see these posters or replications of these posters all over the place uh, had a whole ad campaign about being good for you like Guinness it's good for you yeah, and in fact if you travel in low-income countries you'll still see these signs everywhere and I think I don't yeah. know if they're still making these for these markets or if these are just still remnants of past campaigns but yeah they're not I don't think but they're so famous they're uh, it was you know in, in the ad world it's one of the most iconic and important ads ad campaigns ever it was it, it was it helped brand Guinness uh, in a way that uh, people didn't, this word branding, they, that was not a concept. And then mm -hmm. when Guinness came out with this, these series of ads and the toucan and, and all those uh, wonderful uh, ads from the the uh, artist John Gilroy, uh, they really helped brand that brewery and I think in, it maybe introduced the, the concept of branding to modern marketing. Right. Right. Okay. So, so now we've basically made it to the, the early 20th century uh, porters by uh, the turn of the century, I guess. Um, you right, you right here have about a third of the London market. Yeah, they're dropping off. So London is switching. Uh, porters are going away. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the Great Gravity Drop in the two world wars. Uh, and basically, porters and stouts um, mostly vanish. Uh, by the, by the post-war period, porters had gotten so... Uh, rare, Interesting. that they were they were essentially gone, and I think by like 1970, there was not a single porter was brewed in uh, Great Britain anywhere. Huh. They completely died. The style that traveled to was shipped to Australia and North America and uh, India and Sri Lanka uh, and Russia, all over the world. Yeah, circumnavigated the globe, uh, built these enormous, powerful empire brewing empires. And uh, a, a century later, was completely extinct in its own homeland. Of course, it was still brewed everywhere else. Right. We were. It was still being brewed in the United States. Yeah. It was still being brewed uh, in Australia. There's a wonderful stout called Sheaf Stout that uh -huh. is available. Um, por porter uh, Porter is less less available, and, and actually, stouts never went out of out of. Uh, they never went extinct on on uh, the island of Great Britain, but porters did. And the word for the for the this word porter has such valence in brewing history for right. that beer to go extinct in in Britain it's just weird that that word you know that that word even lost its valence it's, right. it's really amazing to me okay so let's uh let's let's jump the pond then yeah uh and talk about um porters and stouts in US craft brewing 
uh, and by the way, I've probably said this before, but I'm just going to go ahead and use the term craft beer. Uh, yeah. We all kind of know what we're talking about, hopefully. And, um, and, and especially in the Euro, we're talking about it in yeah. the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. So uh, we were talking before we started recording the pod that our early experiences with craft beer were, were largely around uh, porters and stouts. There's uh, a stout called Terminator Stout made by the McMinimans Brewing Empire now in Oregon, mostly in Oregon, some in Washington. I guess now even in British Columbia, is that right? Or no, it's maybe California. Anyway, they've uh, uh, when we were in college, uh, Terminator Stout was one of our go-to beers. Yeah. This was a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's interesting because for a long time, they were kind of uh, a de rigueur style for any new craft brewer. Yeah. They became a style that people really did uh, riff on by uh, putting in bourbon barrels, doing imperial, double imperial, uh, doing other adjunct brewing. Um, but I'm sort of getting ahead of our narrative here. But uh, at the time, that was not the, the way they were approached. They were much more an introductory beer. That's right. That's right. So that's what's... So, so two things that are interesting. One is sort of the progression of uh, the introductory beer into something different. And the second is the sort of arc that seems to have them um, disappearing quite rapidly now. Yeah. I looked, there's a, a, a book I refer to pretty often uh, by a writer named Jessica, uh, Jennifer Trainer thompson mm-hmm. uh, who basically cataloged all the beers she could find in the United States in the, this is in the middle 90s sometime. And I, I actually looked through there. She had 120-something breweries. 128. 128 breweries. And uh, 57% of them made a porter or stout. Right. Uh, and I just did a rough count. That that doesn't, I didn't parse that at all. So if a brewery was a lager brewery, which at the time many in the upper Midwest and Pennsylvania were only made lagers, I still counted it. So just, I mean, it was just really hard not to, encounter a brewery that brewed ales that did not make a dark ale. Right. Especially right. true in the, in the Pacific Northwest and in New England where they were really, really popular. Yeah. Um, I, I did an interview with uh, Gary Fish, the founder of uh, Deschutes Brewing, uh, which is the maker of, of uh, the most popular porter in America, I think mm-hmm. it's safe to say. I know that uh, uh, a couple other breweries make uh, uh, Anchor and uh, the Edmund Fitzgerald Great Lakes makes a makes those, but I'm pretty sure Deschutes sells more porter than anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, he told me about the in 1988 this brewery was founded. He told me about um, uh, a little bit of what it was like then, and I don't have the audio, but I can I will quote this because I think it's it's fairly uh, interesting. Right. He told me um, everybody had a similar theme back then. It was English style ales, and it was light, medium, dark. Our first three beers were Cascade Golden Ale, Bachelor Bitter, and Black Butte Porter. Then he chuckled. Uh, and referring to Black Butte Porter, he said, back in those days, that was an extreme beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went on to explain how he sold Porter to people in 1988, and it goes back to our point that it was an introductory beer. He said, anytime someone comes in and says, give me the lightest thing you've got, you immediately give them a taste of Black Butte Porter. Once they get past the color, I don't like dark beer, you say, just try a sample, it's free. I'll get you the beer you want, but taste this first. We figured we had about 80% of them going, oh, that's really good. I'll have one of those. That's how our brand grew. It also grew uh, enough, uh, it also had enough depth and complexity that the aficionado would also accept it as well. And I think that's an important point. It, it really hit both those markets. It was, it, Black Butte Porter uh, is, is typical of an American porter in that it's, mm-hmm. um, it's got a little bit of roast and a little bit of chocolatey 
character, but it's but it's fairly sweet. Mm-hmm. It's low alcohol, and so if you think you don't like beer and you're asking, I want the lightest thing. What you're signaling is, I don't want an intense beer. Right. And porters are, are perfect for that. They're, they have a lot of familiar flavors that a non-beer person would already like. You know, it's sort of like the chocolate milk or the mocha of. Uh, of the beer world, and it's yeah. really approachable. Well, what's always interesting to me is uh, the eyes. The eyes tell an entirely different story, and so it's very hard to convince people that often, if you go into a, a pub, the lightest thing on the on the beer menu will be a porter. Right. Um, in fact, I had that experience with my my mother a couple years ago, uh, and it's the the dark black beer that actually tends to be the lightest. And um, and yeah, they're often very approachable beers uh, once. You get past your eyes telling you something different. Right. Very approachable, very sessionable. We talked about the Guinness uh, draft beer is four something percent is an incredibly sessionable beer. One, uh, one of the most easy drinking sessionable beers, I suppose, out there. Yeah. So why do you suppose that it became so popular early on with craft uh, beer drinkers? Um, uh, I... I one of my theories, I was trying to decide how I should introduce this, but one of my theories is that um, it was a way in which uh, beer drinkers could could easily differentiate themselves from mm-hmm. the light lager market, that this was something entirely different because it looked entirely different, and yet right. it wasn't a challenging beer. It was actually a very approachable beer. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, and I think uh, it, it, it is different. Two, it's not challenge on, on the level of uh, being a challenge. You're right, but um, it does have more body. Yeah, it does have more sweetness. Oh so yeah. In, from Absolutely. a sensory perspective, it actually it looks different and it feels different in your mouth and it tastes different. So there are a lot of ways in which it was very different, and yet it, you weren't you didn't have to uh, go too far afield, and you didn't have to develop a whole different palate, understand a whole different range of flavors, because yeah. these flavors exist in other parts of the food and beverage. Sure, flavor. sure, and yet, yeah, and so it was, it was something very different, um, but not um, not overwhelming. It also, I think, could signal, you know, you sit there with a big black beer in front of you, and sort of signals that you're you're not a light lager drinker, so I think there was also maybe even the visual cue help. Nowadays, we're, we're long beyond those points, but... It's true, and I always have loved dark ales, and if you have been to my blog or seen our uh, logo for the Beer on a podcast, you see that it's a big old black beer that's in front of Mount Hood. That's our logo. Uh-huh. Uh, and that beer is actually a black beer porter. Gary Fish said I could use that for the logo, and he sent me a, a, a high-res uh, photo of, of a black beer porter. So that beer is actually a black beer porter. All right. Well, gosh dang it. Let's try some. Yeah. That's a good segue, isn't it? So so what's, what's fascinating, you told me this a while ago, that, that uh, Deschutes Empire you can almost describe as being built upon black beer that it was uh, their best-selling beer for a long time. Yeah, and apparently still is. We shot Gary uh, an email before here because I, I wondered if he would have any reflections since... And confirm our narrative. Yes. Uh, and dang it. <laughs> well, he did. He did. A, he kind of did. What, what did he... He said, uh, Black Butte overall for us is up. Mm-hmm. So that would, would tend to uh, thwart our... Uh, narrative, but I'm really happy that it is up because I love this style of beer, and I'm glad that he is uh, having some success with that. Uh, some markets uh, remain mixed, however, and I'm betting that in places that have gone total Uber IPA, like maybe like Oregon, yeah. that's probably more mixed. Yep. Uh, but then he added, and I think this does confirm our our thesis, and maybe he was just being nice. Uh, I think it's safe to say that anything not labeled IPA is finding. Uh, finding it more difficult. So 
that that would track with what we're seeing in the marketplace. Yeah, well, certainly locally, it'd be interesting to know from our uh, our legion of listeners whether they're they're finding this the same is true here, uh, the same is true uh, where they are. But it, it seems certainly true in in Oregon that IPA is king. It has been for a long time, but it's um, but definitely stouts and porters seem to be trailing off. Um, let's get back to that theme too, which is for a while it was kind of the darling of the craft brewers here to take a stout or an IPA and to and to go gonzo on it, right. um, put it in bourbon barrels. That was big for a while. I was getting really tired. I was that was my my main complaint for a while is that everything had to be double imperial this or that. You know, yeah. nine ten percent bourbon barrel aged. Yeah, um, it was a real trend for a while, but that seems to have almost completely died off. Yeah, although where that trend is popular where you see a lot of bourbon barrel aging beer it it's it's often with dark dark ales i mean yeah. it, it's their beers that go really well with that that's and true yeah so you're seeing um continued success with that and, and you know uh deschutes has always been one of the most successful dark beer houses they have not only the black Butte porter but they have uh obsidian stout which they've been making mm-hmm. for 25 years at least at a minimum uh and they their most famous like geek beer is the Abyss, which uh, is a gigantic imperial stout, and then they also make their Black Butte anniversary ale every year. Has a new number for whatever anniversary it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, also yep. a dark beer, so yep. they they are kind of closely associated with uh, dark beers in a way that very few breweries anymore are. You yeah. can't really think of uh, a, a dark beer brewery, and of course they make IPAs and fresh squeezed IPA is now one of the most popular beers that they sell. Yeah. But they still have, they still champion dark ales and God well, bless them for that. And there's a reason they built their empire on Black Bee Porter because it is a really delightful it, beer. I'm it is. Every it time now. I have this, I, I always, if anybody hands me a, a Black Butte, I'm always pretty happy about it. It's a great beer. Um, and it's got, I'm sure most of our listeners will have had this, but it's got a really wonderful balance point between a little bit of roast to give it some base, mm-hmm. but um, it's sweet and frothy and, uh, approachable. Yep. So it's it's exactly what he said. It's it is very approachable, but for the aficionado, it's fairly complex, and it has some interesting uh, uh, dark roasty flavors to give it uh, some interest for you know. Mm-hmm. The more, yeah, you can the more you can detect maker. hints of chocolate and coffee in there, uh, but just hints, nothing too strong. It's a five point two percent beer. Um, you can drink it year round. And you can drink, uh, you can sit down with a six pack of these in front of a game and, and drink a few of these and it's perfectly sessionable. Mm-hmm. You, the, the palate doesn't get tired and it remains interested. It, you know, um, England was always a big touchstone for this brewery and they make a lot of beers that uh, British brewers would recognize. They're balanced, they're not super alcoholic, um, they're designed to be sessionable. And that's what Deschutes does, I think, most most ably. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, we should we should wrap up, but we gotta we have to find a an excuse to uh, hear from Fergal Murray. Yeah, so let's just let's just plug him in here. I, we always try to uh, use quotes when we can of uh, brewers that I've talked to, and um, I, it's hard to work this this in other than just to do it as an adjunct. And just I'll give you the the background. I talked to Fergal, uh, who was the the kind of executive brewmaster. Mm-hmm. face of the brewery uh back when i was writing the beer bible he's actually he left about a year he left Guinness about a year ago mm-hmm. uh this is the most secretive brewery i've ever encountered mm-hmm. um and i think that may be uh more a, a product of being owned by uh the global drinks company diageo but you can't get a you can't tour the brewery uh i know very few people have actually seen the brewery itself mm-hmm. the touring 
experience at, at Guinness is that has nothing to do with a brewery. It's a it's a it's like a Disneyland experience. Right. Apparently a wonderful experience, but but not you don't get to actually see the brewery. Right. And even if you're a beer writer who's writing a book about beer and you want to go and see this famous brewery and talk to the brewer, they won't let you do it. So I I did arrange an interview with them, a phone interview, uh from me to Dublin and uh our interview was weird and strained and I felt really bad about it. Uh, I think that when you're hanging out with a person, you can develop a rapport and ask invasive questions after you've developed a rapport that um, the brewer does not, is not offended by, but right. we got off on the wrong foot and kind of stayed off on the wrong foot. Um, he didn't, he did not want to be, tell me a lot about how the way they made beer, which um, you would expect from a, a brewery that doesn't want you to tour the brewery. That's right. Yep. And I was asking very invasive questions and it was uh, just sort of a weird, it was easily the weirdest conversation I had. And I think he probably felt, uh, worse than i did at yeah. the end um, i think i think from a from a company perspective they try to sort of uh maintain a bit of an aura and a mystery about about what they do and how they do it and yeah uh, i think the natural inclination of uh beer insiders is to like to chop like to talk shop just like anybody yeah and i don't think he actually encountered too many insiders you know he would talk to people about this mystery and it's what people wanted to hear about right so i came and it was like i was asking him invasive questions about his mother yeah you know and i'll just say that i think that's a little bit more common in uh uh in europe well i don't know i I was only with you in england and scotland but um here in the u.s brewers tend to be really open tend to be young you know especially in craft brewing tend to be young usually male young guys um there's a lot of camaraderie i think there's a hugely growing market so it's just like eh, the rising tide is floating all boats so there doesn't tend to be a lot of standoffishness at all but they're much more guarded at least i found um and not like in an unpleasant way but just it's not what they're used to they're yeah they're not really talking that sh- shop very much <laughs> it is what it seems like so yeah and this is an ancient brewery that's been around forever they make a lot of money they're one of uh, the, Ireland's most famous company. So it, it makes sense that they have a lot of proprietary stuff and don't like to divulge that. So uh, to set this up, we'll do two clips. The first okay. one uh, is just uh, by way of showing the awkwardness. Um, you can tell uh, in this clip, um, he, he talks about that mystery and basically says, I'm not going to tell you much more beyond the mystery. Right. The second clip, interestingly, he tells me some really fascinating stuff that seemed like this kind of stuff I wouldn't have told me if I had been trying to <laughs> conceal stuff, which is uh, that it's they have a big... Jeff. Uh, yeah, maybe so. Uh, it's uh, basically they have a big industrial modern brewery and they do high gravity brewing and he just sort of uh, mentioned all that stuff. Uh, I, there's He doesn't mention high gravity brewing specifically there, but we talked about that. But it's just a clip to kind of where he just divulges all that, which is, seems like the stuff you'd actually want to keep secret. So right. it was a really... All just queer all the way around, and and the audio quality is terrible, and I apologize for that. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty cruddy, but we'll do do your best, uh, enjoy it if you can. Um, we'll run these clips back to back, so here they go. And at this point, terrible audio quality is sort of our brand. So <laughs> that's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> we, we like to meet your expectations, even exceed your expectations. That's right. Yeah. Here here we're exceeding. <laughs> all all right. right. So here's Virgil. We do have a legendary process that um, it, it, it is unique and there is element of mystery behind it. <laughs> you're not going to get that out of me. The whole idea is to get the best efficiency on optimization of the grain that you purchase out of your brewer. Yes. So if you can get anything up to 100% conversion between... Um, of the carbohydrate and the brewing sugars, you're, 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 you're doing a good job, right? So fundamentally, how everybody does that is down 
just a game on the on my hand there. So how you can get more from the ingredients possible, right? Um, and that, that and that's what we try to do. So um, if we have to uh, um, increase the grid size to generate a maximum efficiency at a particular time of the year, we will. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. do um, like, we stream, the streams or the number of brewhouse products that we deliver would be minimized due to the fact that we're aiming for optimization. Uh, and then we'll do all the rest of it later on. Um, right. You know, in, in creating the, the liquid that needed to go into the different, the, the different packaging components that we want around the world, yeah? There you go. And once again, apologies for the audio, but uh, there you have it from Guinness himself. All right, so uh, let's let's wrap up our our uh, porter and stout and move on to our next segment of the blog uh, of the pods, excuse me, uh, which is uh, the mailbag. Ah, the mailbag. So we actually kind of touched on one uh, topic that uh, Ryan Sharp from Bend brought up. He asked about uh, the uh, the shift. Uh, in dark ales toward these these ones that we talked about, the really intense ones with uh, um, high alcohol things with lots of uh, ingredients and kind of, you know, packaged up, uh, cocoa nibs and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of touched on that. Uh, the second topic is unrelated to porters. Uh, we have a comment from Mark Bunster. What does Mark say? You, I think you can read that more easily. Okay, Mark, Mark writes, who will be the first brewer to partner with a purveyor of cannabis to bring a Brews and Buds Lounge to Oregon? In parentheses, yes, I know currently there is no public use allowed, but there will be. And even today, you could set one up as a private member's club. Unquote. So this is an interesting uh, Oregon... Uh, Oregon, Washington, Colorado question, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. All three states with a, a thriving craft beer industry uh, and who have legalized recreational use of marijuana. And the two kind of relate closely together in the uh, social sphere. Uh, we know here in Oregon that a lot of people who uh, drink beer, drink craft beer, uh, smoke marijuana, and in fact, the the two kind of influence each other. I know that the the indus- the uh, cannabis industry is um, taking cues from craft brewing and craft brewing in the the way that they talk about hops and, and IPA flavors uh, takes a cue from cannabis. So yeah, I will say that I don't uh, I don't know when this is going to happen. It wouldn't surprise me that it'll happen eventually, uh, but I don't think it's actually too different from what you see now because even though public use of recreational marijuana is prohibited, uh, it's widespread. And so if you're outside of a pub. Uh, you probably um, would not be surprised these days in Portland to <laughs> to catch a whiff of uh, of uh, marijuana fumes. And it does seem like uh, once a few years have rolled by, and as we've seen uh, early signs of in Colorado and Washington, um, that there are not big problems with the use the use of cannabis. That um, there will be a loosening on the the public consumption, so there will be cannabis bars. Um, and then, yeah, whether whether cannabis, whether they'll allow uh, alcohol use at those those places uh, very quickly is another matter. But yeah, as a social ex- as a social scientist, the this sort of experiment that's unfolding in front of my eyes is fascinating. Yeah, to, it's fascinating to observe. I'm also the father of two 
two boys. So it'd be interesting as a parent to think about how you're gonna how you're gonna deal with this. But one of the things that uh, that cropped up that I hadn't really even noticed very much, but my wife sure did when her parents um, came to town for the holidays, which is um, there are billboards all over town now advertising uh, uh, marijuana shops. Yeah, um, and they seem to be. Uh, um, really, almost monopolizing the local, local, bill, local billboards around. So yeah, my, mom, the, my mom had to, uh, my my wife had to explain to her mother and father. Yeah, and it, it's a huge thing in uh, a commercial mark, a commercial uh, real estate markets too, because uh, there are a lot of cannabis producers who are trying to rent out property. So it's sending uh, uh, a commercial and industrial. Uh, space way high which actually affects brewing because it 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 doesn't pen out so well to have your brewery uh if you if you don't have relatively access to relatively inexpensive uh industrial space so if all the cannabis producers are buying that the price goes up and then you have more and more troubles so these two these two industries will um uh if you know continue to go along side by side and, and at times conflict and at times help each other and it'll be interesting to watch it happen yeah interesting okay so let's move on since we're already pretty pretty long on the pot already yeah. so let's, let's move on um straight to the uh the beer shipper recommends what's your recommendation for this week well Jeff? my one of my very favorite porters in the entire world is um and actually just one of my favorite beers is a is a uh porter from portland maine mm-hmm. uh the geary brewing company there uh makes a porter they call london porter and it is um like you said, it's I think four percent, four and a half percent, but it is just intense with flavors. It's it's got a lot of uh, roasty um, flavors. It's got a little bit of caramel under there. I I um I mentioned in in one review that it's almost got like a creosote quality. And when I <laughs> when I talked to uh, the owner, whose first name I'm now forgetting, Dan Geary. Uh, Mr. Geary, mm-hmm. uh, he was not super fond of that, <laughs> and I can I can appreciate that. But I, when I wrote it, I was I was trying to evoke something um, that really captured my imagination, and I love evocative uh, of London. It was a, yeah, exactly. That's more London than Chris. That's right. I was trying. That's the road I was trying to go down. But um, he was not he was not so fond of that. Anyway, I think it's a spectacular beer. If you are in New England by yourself, uh, a six pack of that beer, you won't regret it. All right. Uh, my recommendation this week is um, sort of an old classic. Is interesting. David. David Geary. David Geary. D.L. Geary. David. Sorry. Yep. The old minds. Yeah. They have a way of percolating information. It just takes a little long. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, please. Uh, my, my recommendation this week is uh, what I kind of consider a, cla- a classic. Although, um, you know, w- when before I visited all these breweries in England with you, I always thought the Samuel Smith Brewery must be one of the biggest, most important breweries in all of the UK because they're so ubiquitous in the US market. Right. Uh, it turns out that they are this weird, small, little quixotic brewery that somehow got really into the export market in the US and established a foothold. Um, uh, but so my beer pick is actually one of the early stout encounters I had, and that was Samuel Smith's Oatmeal Stout. Yeah, um, and, and probably... The first oatmeal style you had, I know it was my first oatmeal style. Yeah, uh, and actually, the pick is precisely because of the oatmeal. I was thinking of uh, recommending, um, but I'm trying not to recommend too many local beers, the Otis uh, style, mm-hmm. which is from Ninkasi, which is also an oatmeal style. And I actually right. really like the way that the oats play against the roast character in stout. It sort of gives it this, uh, I don't know how you'd describe it, but sort of smoothness, lush sort of velvety yeah. undertone. Um, and a little bit of a hint of sweetness that kind of balances with the roast. 
Um, so yeah. either one is a great is a great beer. But since Samuel Smith is is easily found pretty much all over the U.S. these days, uh, that's one to try. And I think actually we didn't we didn't really talk about the antecedents for uh, the American market and American porters and stouts. But that brewery was incredibly influential because there were so few English beers that were available in the United States, mm, right. and it was one of them. And they were making things like Nut Brown Ale, which is a, a style back in the yep. day that was really brown ales were really popular. Yep. And I think they were probably looking at, at this as a, a what they thought of as a typical English brewery. It turns out it's not that typical, but yeah. um, uh, Americans thought so. And we made uh, beers that were a lot like uh, Samuel Smith. So yeah. I think it's a good recommendation. Yeah, it's not typical, but it's a wonderful brewery and, and a really traditional one and a fascinating place to, to, to visit. So yeah. anyway, if you find, uh, if you're interested in uh, tasting a, a fairly uh, traditional yet with oatmeal stout, look for Samuel Smith's. All right. Well, we did go really long here, and we will try not to do this in the future. But this was a huge topic. It's it's uh, it's the longest chapter in my book, and it's just the most uh, interesting style. So you know, we couldn't do it more quickly, I guess. Also, That's we tasted right. four beers, which might have been ambitious. That's but, right. You know, more, more more value for your money. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. What are you guys? What are you guys talking about? You don't have to pay anything for this. <laughs> anyway, thanks again for listening to the uh, to the podcast this week. A uh, few words about how to get in touch. Jeff, of course, blogs at Beervana and all about beer. He tweets at at Beervana. Uh, I blog uh, occasionally at Beeronomics. I more frequently tweet um, at at Beeronomics. But uh, most importantly, if you'd like to get in touch with us, please send email to the underscore beeraxe at yahoo.com. Or you can visit the Beervana blog Facebook page. Either way, we'll get your communication. But please do send in your uh, questions and comments. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and this was a really rich topic. And, and if you have favorite porters or stouts or comments about this or anything else, let us know. We would like to uh, keep the conversation going. All right, so I'm going to, let's see, I'll pick up the Guinness. Um, I'm really enjoying this. Uh, this is, of course, the Guinness Extra Stout. By the way, if you're going to try a Guinness for the first time, the Extra Stout is not a bad place to start. It's true. I And, and uh, especially if you... Really, if you, you have, everybody's had Guinness. What am I saying? <laughs> Definitely have an extra stout. I well, okay, yeah. Actually, I should, I should rephrase. So, if your only experience with Guinness is the stuff on draft in the pub, go find an extra stout uh, and uh, compare and contrast it. And, I, and I'm going to go with the hometown favorite, uh, Deschutes Blackbeat Porter here. All right, Suji Jeff. Cheers. Cheers.